I always, you know, I love the Steve Jobs thing of making it dent in the universe. So what we want to attract and who we want to invest in and where we want to help with the power of our fund investor base is into those ideas that are very, will probably be very hard to to get to to that stage. But but then when once you get there, uh, that will have massive impact and, and uh, dent in the universe. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, we welcome Sebastian Pollock, Vehau alum, co-founder of groundbreaking love toy company Amora Lee, and currently founding partner of Berlin-based VC fund, The Visionaries Club. Today we're discussing Polly's founder journey, his unique trajectory from student to founder, his post-exit transition into VC, and so much more. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU. On the banks of the Rhine River. In beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Sebastian Pollock. It's good to finally do this. I know we've been talking about getting together and getting you on the podcast for, for quite a while now. And um, yeah, thanks for having me and such a cool office you guys have here in Berlin. Cool. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, very much looking forward to the podcast. Yeah. Well, um, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a long time coming. And I think it's a topic that I've been really keen to, to talk about. Because, you know, at this point, I've now, I think, met with 40 plus Vehau alums that have had pretty uh, extraordinary uh, trajectories in their entrepreneurial journeys. And to me, yours is unique. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> well, I think you've, you've done some interesting things that I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing you share. You know, um, I find... Um, you know, I come from a background of, of tech entrepreneurship, but I'm always amazed at people that build ventures that I, I'm interested in people that build ventures that aren't in the traditional tech space. Like uh, about a month ago or so, I had Marcus Stahl on who created Tony's. To me, that is cool. just a yeah. wealth of learning, right? right. Like a, a venture that I could never even process, like how you would do something like that. Yeah. To me, what you did is kind of fits in that same category. Yeah. Consumer electronics, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm going to leave that to you to kind of uh, use the right adjectives around that. But um, as we as we do with all of our podcasts, um, we start from a, a perspective of storytelling. So why don't you go ahead and kick things off and, and tell us a little bit about your founder journey, where you come from and, and kind of how you ended up to where you are today. Sure. Um, and I guess we can, uh, I, I, I won't try to stretch this as long as, as possible, but, but give you a quick, quick summary and then uh, you can also double click on you know, any parts that you're more interested in. So, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, since this is a WHU founder podcast, let me, I'll start at WHU. Um, so I was there 2006 to 2009. Uh, I think I was on this back then typical WHU trajectory, which back then, uh, so this is not, not to be confused with WHU today, which amazingly has turned into this, this, uh, th this cool entrepreneurship university. But back then it was definitely more of a, a third of my class went into consulting, a third went into banking, a third went into good old corporate. And I think it was just Dominic Richter, who then went on to start HelloFresh, uh, Ferry Heilemann, who went on to start Daily Deal and sold that to Groupon, uh, sorry, to, to, to Google, uh, and me, uh, who I think were the only three out of the, the large bunch who, who uh, then actually ended up starting companies. By now, I think there are a couple of, uh, a lot more 
also from our year back then. But yeah, so it was different. And I was also almost on this path to consulting in my case. I had interned at BCG and then uh, had an offer on the table. And um, uh, a friend of mine, also WHU uh, graduate, who talked me into spending a summer in Berlin in 2009. So that was right after... I actually I had to finish my bachelor thesis at the same time, but um, I, uh, I I spent a summer here in Berlin at Rocket, mm-hmm. and Rocket back then wasn't the Rocket that it is that it was then a couple of years later, and that definitely not what it is today. But it, it was still the very early beginning. So it was Zabrücker Straße 21, uh, so that that infamous first headquarter of Rocket uh, where. The rocket summer party was also happening that summer where Oli was mingling between the 60 or 70 of us. So it was really, it was a small operation. Um, I think Zalando was in the process of being started and it was, uh, or had been started, but was only, had been around for a year or so. So it was very early days. And um, I walked through the door of, so Home24 was, was the venture. Uh, and by now it's known as Home24, but back then, it was still lampenexperte.de, kirschkernkissen.de, and a bunch of other random front-end stores um, modeled after the CSN stores concept uh, that you know from the US, uh, which is now Wayfair. And uh, that that construct, uh, FP Commerce, was the official name, took that same route over the next years to and end up being Home24, which we all know today. But I was one of the first 10 uh, on the team for that summer and I just I loved it I, I yeah I think ever since walking through that door of Zabrukastrasse 21 spending the first day I knew okay this is so much of what I've always loved as uh, even actually going back to my childhood uh, technology and and um, entrepreneurship to some extent I never defined it as such uh, when I was a kid but I was always the one organizing stuff and and rallying all the kids in the in the neighborhood around certain causes like I don't know uh, saving the white Siberian tiger, which was definitely one of the causes that was very true to my and close to my heart. But um, uh, yeah, so I actually I, I think that was a very pivotal moment for me in 2009, and then I, I kept the offer with BCG standing because they always invited me to like nice drinking events and stuff. So things that I didn't want to say no to, um, but I. I already knew I was going to say no to to the offer, not because I didn't like it, but because I just found this, uh, it just clicked and I, I had found this this one thing that I really, yeah, that I've, I've been in love with ever since. Uh, so for the past, by now, uh, 13 plus years. And um, yeah, I you know, half-heartedly finished my master's. I went on to, after the summer, I went to St. Gallen and, and to Kellogg and to, to finish, to, to do my master's. And, but even during that time, I think I spent 50% of my, my uh, waking hours on TechCrunch and organizing the first startup weekend in Switzerland and startup tours left and right. And yeah, so I really, um, I found my true calling and um, it came to no surprise that I then interned at now they're called headline back then, uh, eVentures or eVenture Capital Partners even, uh, in, first in Hamburg and then in San Francisco in 2010. So a year after this Home24 internship that was during my master's. Uh, once again, uh, another WHU friend of mine, uh, Tim Marbach, from, who had started Kaufta and sold that to Axel Springer, where headline was one of the investors. He actually referred me to them. and. That's how I ended up as an intern, first in Hamburg, then San Francisco. They really loved it. I loved it. And so uh, they wanted to have me back. And I started as a, then as a VC in San Francisco um, and did that until 2012. But always had a feeling I wanted to start my own company. And uh, that's why I moved back from Silicon Valley, from the dream job of lots of people too. <laughs> To actually shitty shitty apartment here in Berlin. Uh, if you're at Soho House in Berlin, uh, go up to the rooftop, take a look straight left. Uh, there are some super shitty 
German Democratic Republic <laughs> building, <laughs> you, you know, yeah, buildings, yeah, you know those. Um, and that's where I lived, uh, in this little student dorm, paying, I don't know what, 150 bucks a month because I needed to keep my, my burn low because uh, I didn't want to ask my parents for money. And um, uh, so I only had my savings. And yeah, that's why I, I worked on lots of stupid startup ideas. <laughs> um, and uh, eventually, I gave myself 12 months. So uh, it was definitely tough, tough 12 months uh, living on a, on a tight budget and always coming up with startup ideas and then dropping them after testing them out and then coming up with new ones. So you had uh, Steve Blank on, you know, this, this, uh, I was definitely looking for this, uh, my epiphany. Were you doing this alone? Um, in uh, alone, uh, then random team constellations that then also broke up again. And I was always the one who, who remained uh, with, I guess, the the biggest and in, in, or more most enduring will to to actually find something in the end but then it was after after trying to attack this from a very structured point of view going through the yellow pages from a to z and you know starting with a and thinking about all the different industries etc and 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 uh, and, and um uh, yeah whatever what's a good example with with a like arts praxis in German, so a like uh, let's say uh, yeah, help me out. What's a what's a good job that starts with an a in, uh, well, in like English? Arts uh, praxis, so like medical. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So, so you were basically so I was, combing I was just, every every type. Of exactly. That, that that's why I wanted to say I was just trying to find a find a good job that starts with an a in English, and I I can only come up with one in German right now, but. Um, so aviation, uh, starting with aviation and ending with zoos or whatever. Um, yeah. So, but that that didn't lead me anywhere. And then um, I, it was actually more by coincidence that uh, I, I think I was approaching month nine or ten out of those twelve. I told myself to not take a job. So until those twelve months are over, so I didn't earn any money. Uh, I was just working on ideas. And and then in what was it winter of 2012, I um, together with with Leah, my then Amorli co-founder, and we had met at BCG, uh, doing both our internships there. We actually we we uh, discovered this this unmet pain point maybe not even maybe pain point is the, is the wrong description here but um i guess for some but um yeah so 50 shades of gray had just come out was released in in the uk and completely went through the roof it was even more successful for for a part of times than than the bible and then uh, harry potter so that means a lot so you you suddenly get an idea for the dimensions and uh, and we also I uh, I had uh, an example from from fab.com which was a uh, like a like a bon privé type of website selling design items and whenever they whenever they put on love toys like design love toys they were also sold out within within a super sh super short time and and then we really started thinking about it, that you know most people at some point in their lives have a relationship guess all of us at some point um, uh, and to most of us it's also if you really think about it, it is it is the one of those things that also true and core to your happiness and then we started thinking yeah so why isn't there like a like almost like a Zalando for people's love lives why isn't there the super cool high-end uh, fashionable lifestyle site where you can you know, do buy stuff and try out stuff for your love life. And so I think we were the first ones to go beyond those initial chuckles and, uh, yeah, but we can't do that. We're whatever, Mannheim and WHU grads. And uh, uh, yeah, so we really, I think we really thought about this very differently and, and, uh, and, and asked ourselves, so, you know, what would we want to see in this side? How would it need to be done? And, 
what are all the question marks and all the the you know this little uh, embarrassed moments that you that that you would probably have and and how can you best meet them uh, as as an amorlee and um yeah and then we also obviously since we're both uh, both Leah and myself come from a business background we also asked ourselves how do the economics actually look like in this business and i think that's when it truly got uh, interesting because being the almost no, i think being the first to to actually professionally and seriously think about this we were met with a with a world that is that is very different where people don't so the traditional producers and the traditional merchants you know that think train station district think offline think weird products um and that that uh, black plastic bag that <laughs> you you get when you uh, and that everybody knows what's in there. So we we actually went the complete opposite direction. We went more Apple, more high end, and uh, yeah. Then you suddenly you have crazy cross margins. I knew from my time at Home Twenty Four that storage and shipping, etc. Let's say of a a chair or a table or you know any sort of um, furniture you know, that's you may sell it for 200 euros but it takes crazy amounts of storage in the warehouse it's complicated shipping um, people when they return it it's also complicated return rates are a big problem in e-commerce generally speaking right with the Zalando uh, back then with 50 plus percent uh, return rates and then we suddenly stumbled upon this business vertical where you end up with a and that was pretty much unnegotiated gross margin of 50 percent plus we at some point when we started introducing private label in our own products uh, then you suddenly were 85 percent 90 percent plus gross margin you had super low return rates obviously because of the type of products um of two three percent um yeah, so pretty much no competition, how we approach the product. Yeah, so we actually, we dared crossing the Rubicon and making the step and, and, and actually um, on January 25th of 2013, launching Amorelia. Uh, and we thought we could now scale this very easily as we had learned at Rocket, each one of us um, and, and seen before just perform doing performance marketing Google ads, etc., etc., uh, only to realize, oh shit, actually, <laughs> there is people don't know about this, and there are very few people who actually start Googling love toys. And, and so we realized, at least within the customer group that we were targeting, which was more female driven, more couple driven, and uh, definitely more mainstream within uh, the center of society, not somewhere at the extreme outskirts uh, of the society so we actually realized what we knew how to do is not going to get us anywhere so performance marketing but we need to learn how to do brand marketing we actually need to establish Amorelie as a brand we need to develop PR blueprints which we did with our little pop-up stores and with seasonal products and the Christmas calendar and stuff like that and uh, we also need to look for not pull-based marketing channels, but more push-based. So AKA TV, for example, which was a big breakthrough for us um, pretty much a year later after we had struggled to get to, I think, almost was it a little less than a million in the first year, first 12 months. But we had to invest a million to get out a million. So that was minus 100% EBITDA, um, not, not the greatest business uh, on the planet if it had stayed that way. But going from there to then launching TV and then seeing that uh, explode, because if you remember back then, so this was then 2000, January 2014, when you, when you turned on ProSieben, for example, this German um, TV station, you could, uh, when, when you went into one of those seven minute, eight minute ad blocks, then it's just travel, 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 fashion, fashion, fashion. And, but then suddenly, love toys. Mm. And we were the first ones to ever bring this to television within the Heidi Klum, Germany's Next Top Model 
type of prime time, really 8.30 p.m. pro seven at, uh, at block and at block is the wrong word, but you know, at, at uh, session. And uh, yeah, so it was insane. I just remember us sitting there when the first, first ad was aired and uh, on Google Analytics and the live view and so it was on whatever our baseline was and then suddenly pff, saw this huge spike and so we knew we were onto something then and I think then yeah the rest as they say is history but so we went from struggling barely to this one million in the first year to then fast forward um, another three years actually to to then ending the year 2017 with 60 million in net sales um 20 positive ebitda so doing 12 million in actual ebitda so super super profitable business fast growing um with an amazing team of more than 100 here based out of berlin but pretty much covering europe so yeah um it was a big struggle and and if from the outside it it did look like this this super nice uh, exponential growth trajectory. If if you zoom in at any of those points, then you will still see the ups and downs, ups and downs. But at least, yeah, the I would say the overall trend line, uh, the flattened uh, trend line, um, pointed in the right direction. And we, um, yeah, we had raised some some funding along the way from great investors. Uh, also, uh, you know some. So the guys behind Cherry, for example, uh, were amazingly helpful. Um, uh, the SB21, so the Saarbrücker 21, uh, some ex-Rocket dudes uh, who are also amazing. Um, then Power Ventures, uh, a cool fund and some um, some more funding. And then Prusim also seeing how successful those ads were comparing they they compared everything that you know they're super kpi driven comparing that to uh, all the other companies who are airing their ads and then they saw okay that's that's a crazy response rate we've never seen that that's a crazy response to conversion rate uh, that's a great and crazy conversion to gross margin slash you know cash cash flow rate uh, they also decided first to invest in the company and then in 2018 to acquire Amorli pretty much 200 percent um did the did the the station did Prozeven invest or did seven ventures it's called um it was called seven commerce um Got, now, but it was basically uh, their cvc the, arm yeah but it's it's tightly integrated at it was tightly integrated at, at Prozeven back then so we um there wasn't there was no Chinese wall or anything, but we, and it was part of the value proposition that obviously we would then have access to, to amazing, TV deals and um, yeah, pretty much to the power of, a media one of Europe's largest media companies, and we also used that quite heavily, and we also had made the decision to allow them to invest, which is a bit atypical because we saw that. Um, and, and I think, sorry, one step back, I think every business has has kind of an Achilles heel. And I think that's how you say yep. it, right? Uh, and um, and, and uh, so Amorli's Achilles heel was customer acquisition because of the, because of that, that um, what I explained earlier there was, it, it was still a yeah, less pull, but more push based and market education type of business. And so we knew that getting exclusive access to to something like a Prozeben that was going to be uh, such a such a crazy crazy enabler for the business and and uh, that's why we had decided to take them in as an investor started working with them and then in 2015 they also uh, that's that's when they uh, had also stepped up a bit more and uh, then 2018 they um, decided to acquire the entire business and yeah that was uh, uh, that was obviously a crazy crazy moment did uh, you see that coming 
that a, no. a television, a media no. company no. would buy a sex toy and, company? No, and, and, and I mean, I, I, I should show you uh, slide deck number one. So much of what we had to do and end up doing wasn't in there at all. So as I said, you know, we thought it was going to be performance marketing based business, but I'm so happy that that it wasn't because pretty much all performance marketing based businesses pretty much went down the drain uh, as soon as Amazon got even more successful and and people rightly say, you know, whatever has has a barcode that you can scan, Amazon will probably do it and will probably dominate. However, if you think about what's Amazon good at and what do we, I guess uh, it goes for not just you and me, but pretty much for everyone, what do we use Amazon for typically? It's not to discover products, but it's to search for products when you already have something in mind that you want to buy, then you go, then you type it in or you type in a product category. Um, but it's typically, uh, it's less of an inspirational discovery side. And Amor Lee is 100%, uh, I'll take you by your hand. It, uh, you know, you probably don't know anything about this, but like, hey, you can trust us. We've been there ourselves. We don't know anything either. Uh, that type of for us, uh, for you type of type of side where, yeah, we really, um, where we really made sure that it's a discovery inspirational experience with lots of trust. And I think that's actually in building this brand in a space where there were pretty much no product brands itself, right? So there which is also another aspect to this, uh, why Amorili became so successful. When you think about fashion, then as Zalando is just, it's a place for your, whatever you fancy, you know, uh, for your diesel, for your boss, for your, you name it. Um, but uh, for Amorili, nobody actually, if, if I had asked you, hey, what are your favorite love toy brands? Like, oh, I don't know. So that's why there was such such room to also create those brands. We had 11 brands that we created uh, with very different products and, and with those 90% plus gross margins. So, mm, yeah, but that's that's pretty much, I mean, that's, if we can dive very deep on lots of cool, uh, uh, funny uh, Amorili stories. But let's do that a little bit, because I think there's some interesting pieces there, right? And, I, you know, I think thinking of the audience of being aspiring entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. how you, you know, I, I think I've said this once before on the podcast, but one of my favorite quotes is by Mike Tyson, where he says, everyone has a plan until so, he gets punched in the mouth, punched, right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and I think you kind of went through this experience yeah. where you, yeah. ha you had these hypotheses and, yeah. and one by one, certain things broke down and, and right. you had to adapt. And yeah. I think some of them are worth exploring maybe a little bit. But the first one I, w I want to talk about a little bit it, because of something you said, which is, you know, here we are, you know, Monheim Vehao grads did our, did our internships at BCG. Like there is um, a perception of a trajectory that you're on. Yeah. And then you're like, hey world, we're, we're going to get into the, the, the sex toy biz. And, and uh, we always call it love toys, by the way. Yeah. Pardon me. I, I will. I will get that. Get that appropriately. Um, and I think that's something worth unpacking too. But um, this is a, a business that I think has a lot of stigmas attached to it. And you know, for for people that aren't in Germany, um, I think it's even it's maybe more mainstreamed here and that there's you can find sex shops around um, maybe not always in the nicest neighborhood but yeah. there's pretty much one in every town at least you know and right. in other parts of the world it's even more underground and, mm. and even even less mainstream yeah. talk to me a little bit about this decision to go down this path and how you had to deal with stigmas and societal kind of right. perceptions of something. Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, not not so much. I um, because of how we how we set it up um, that we wanted it to be more like a uh, like a Zappos uh, for love toys or like a Zalando for love toys for the European audience. Um, and I think it's it, it's actually it's this is the perfect sign that you're onto something when it's either when a business either this wasn't the case for us but when it's very boring and people say oh my god i mean this is so boring then i would never spend time exploring ideas in this space okay actually cool 
then maybe not a lot of people have done it. So it might make sense to to explore as a as a as somebody who wants to start a company or exactly like this where you have to break taboos where you have to completely rethink a space to then come up with something that people will will buy and that they will be passionate about and you know when you look at Amor Lee these days we had this so in Germany Christmas calendar it's a big thing Advent uh, you know it's, it's for the for the pre-Christmas time and uh, at some point we I think we are the biggest Christmas calendar producer in Europe so we sold like 25 million worth of Christmas calendar. And these were advent Christmas calendars yeah. with yeah. with love toys. Yeah, every door has it. Yeah. yeah, and 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 you know so many uh, friends of my, uh, all of my friends. But uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how many people ended up having a, one of Amory's Christmas calendars. Uh, probably a million or so. Um, overall, more than a million. So that's uh, that's huge. And and these were people put them just they put them in the living room, and for everyone to see. So I think that was that was the uh, when we got started, being a pirate, being an adventurer. I loved it. I loved that spirit. I loved being very unconventional in what I was doing. Then at some point, you know, I'm really turned into this amazing lifestyle brand, and and people were so proud of posting about it and and I think that's where we had accomplished that mission and when you talk about Germany these days being very liberal when it comes to that I think this is not 100% due to Amor Lee but I think Amor Lee also played an important role in this in 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 the society getting more liberal in this this aspect so I'm I'm actually super proud and happy about what we did and and I think it's just a It's a great opportunity whenever you feel this, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be thinking about this. And, oh, yeah, well, probably that's that's uh, that's the right time to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was, um, you know, Amor Lee. And then uh, 2018, after selling the company, I took some time off. Nine months, uh, I told myself at least I need to take off six months because I, I know myself that I I'd probably jump into the next opportunity right away so I, I didn't I forced myself not to and I just traveled a bit climbed Kilimanjaro worked at the kitchen of a restaurant for a month uh, caused lots of lots of trouble there because uh, I was just I was trying to learn how to cook I'm still terrible at it and also uh, take a peek behind um, the closed doors of, of the gastronomy industry um, I meditated for 10 days in absolute silence and wasn't able to look at people and to gesture, to mimic, to do sports, to read, to write, no nothing. Definitely one of the uh, one of the toughest times in my life. Uh, those 10 days. Did you feel like you needed to like yeah. cleanse yourself? Yeah, a bit. Uh, yeah, at least to get to a reset and to 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 really yeah take my mind off of things for sure, 100. And then I guess after. I already noticed after those six months, um, but I dragged it out a bit more. I, I noticed that I was, I was getting that itch, and I wanted to start something again. And then one of my good friends, Rob, who I had have known for a long time, and we have also co-invested together because I already during the Amor Lee times I had started doing angel investments and did my twenty-five, thirty angel investments. I started investing in funds. I also sat on the board of Cherry for a long time until I started Visionaries with Rob um, so which where we said okay that now probably doesn't make sense to sit on the advisory board of a different venture capital fund when I'm running my own um, but we're doing lots of deals together with Cherry so we're still like this but yeah yeah we didn't want to risk any conflict of interest but Rob and I so Rob he's also a founder had sold his company to Zalando then um, started his own fund where I was one of the first investors into the fund then did lots of deals together, me as an angel during the Amor Lee times and him as a GP, so general partner, founding partner at the other fund. And um, yeah, then we, uh, we actually, small by coincidence that we uh, met at the end of 2018 because we were, spent a weekend together with a couple of friends and then we started talking about what's next. And he was also 
done investing out of this first fund and then we said hey how about we put our heads together and we we try to think about the the setup that a vc fund should have so that it's most amazing would have been most amazing for us as founders and would be the fund that we would have always loved to have as founders and yeah the outcome of that is visionaries club so uh, we purposely structured the fund in a way that it's it brings together the most amazing entrepreneurs on the planet as our investors and they're all super engaged with our portfolio so typically i don't know you know how how, how technically detailed people listeners know about how a fund works but you have lps so-called lps limited partners uh, they are investors into funds and but they are typically shielded and and kind of uh, hidden away from the portfolio founders and i guess typically for good reason because typically who's investing in venture funds are large pension funds for example and large institutional investors so you know both sides for portfolio founders and fund investors probably has not much you can talk about but in our case we said let's not have those investors but let's only have amazing cool super value add and very very successful digital founders on the one hand and family business owners on the other hand um so by now we have like 30 40 plus unicorn founders who invested in visionaries club and who are sparings partner to our portfolio like uh, daniel dines who started uipath and ipo did um the molly founder adrian the flix bus uh, guys uh, get your guide um we have uh, miro founder andre and many others so it's a, it's a long list uh, and and obviously they are the best possible sparings partners to have for our portfolio founders when it comes to how do you actually scale your company and then on the other hand there are these amazing family business owners so like a Marcus Swarovski owns Swarovski Fisman uh, Edgar Bitburger Felix Fiege who runs Fiege so one of the largest trade forwarders in, in Europe many others so uh, lots of names you would also know but I, I uh, some of them I can't talk about and what they have is this incredible not just this incredible network which is pretty much covering the entire European business landscape but they themselves are running these companies where they are the, the the core decision makers in businesses that typically have a very long horizon and long vision uh, that are super entrepreneurial that they are making those cool and uh, decisions when it comes to implementing the solutions that our portfolio founders and portfolio um, is providing so that's the essence of Visionaries Club, where we have started micro funds um, first to invest in B2B SaaS topics, uh, where we did some some amazing investments, both in the pre-seed seed space, which is one micro fund, and then the other one is a bit later stage. Um, uh, so Pezonio and uh, Shoko and GTM Hub, Leapsum, many B2B all, all B2B SaaS. And now we are just in the process of process of have pretty much raised a uh, second generation of funds for those b2b vehicles um, which will be a bit bigger but still you know now we've we have this amazing team here uh, it's the 15 of us and um yeah next to that now this is a bit of a brainchild or something you know i talked about the white siberian tiger earlier um i've i really i've always loved science and uh, i've I've also noticed for myself that I'm, I became a dad a year ago and I, I really wanted to, within Visionary Club, on this amazing platform, um, so listening to lots of our LPs and what their desires are and then taking a look at the world, I had a feeling um, together with Rob and the team that, that there needs to be a, a fund, a micro fund, so this is going to be like, a, I don't know what, 50 million plus sized fund uh, called Visionaries Tomorrow. Uh, which is investing more in, in super breakthrough ideas that will have a scientific tech angle, which is going to help those companies 
achieve their mission, which is always going to be that they want to make a huge dent in the universe, that they want to attack the world's largest issues. So would you call this like an impact fund then? Like I wouldn't call it that way um, uh, because yeah, for some reason it's, 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 it's the impact for some reason is oftentimes correlated with lower returns, right. um, puts whatever, so yeah. puts you in a box. So uh, it's specifically, it is investing in crazy breakthrough ideas to the world's largest problems. So uh, I always, you know, I love the Steve Jobs thing of making it in the universe. So what we want to attract and who we want to invest in and where we want to help with the power of our fund investor base is into those ideas that are very, will probably be very hard to, to get to, to that stage. But, but then when, once you get there, uh, that would have massive impact and, and uh, dent in the universe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's admirable. And, and, uh, but I'm really interested in how that maybe marries with a more traditional VC fund, right? Yeah. I mean, generally, when you're talking these maybe bigger big bets or, or moonshot kind of things, right. especially scientific, yeah. they tend to have more R&D, they move a little bit slower, yeah. they take more time. Yeah. So that tends to require more patient investments yeah. and, and things of That's that true. sort. Yeah. Is this a separate entity or do you It's a separate entity. Them? So it's within the Visionaries Club for us is a platform. So that's that's our amazing LPs plus the team plus you know all the, all the things that we've built so far. And then there will still be the B2B funds, but they will be these are separate entities and then there's the Tomorrow Fund, and the Tomorrow Fund has a longer time horizon, um, and it's very clear from from the onset that LPs who commit to the fund, so fund investors who commit to the fund, they need to bring a bit more time. They also need to, so they need to be more patient. They also need to accept that there is a higher risk, that there will be a higher default rate, but. You know, if you want to invest in the Tesla of the future and the BioNTech of the future, then you need to be among those few who dare. And you can't be one of those bystanders um, who then a couple of years later say, oh, shit, yeah, actually, great. Now it makes a ton of sense. But yeah, so you need to build a portfolio um, that can't be as so it will be like a 30, 30 company per fund portfolio. Um, so you can't just do a very concentrated portfolio of like five, ten investments, but you need to have that a bit larger portfolio. We'll, we'll be investing pre-seed seed. So I think that's also part of that that game that um, coming in early and and then really helping those founders in 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 uh, yeah growing by first of all building their company and then growing, scaling, getting to product market fit with those ideas where those family business owners can obviously help a lot and then scaling globally where our digital founders can help so that's my that's like the uh, besides obviously running uh, running the the b2b funds and being um, involved there that this is the new the new little entrepreneurial seed that that we're now planting here uh, on on the visionaries soil and which we're all super excited about well, I think that maybe is is just one good question I have. How this all kind of comes together? Because I think a lot of a lot of young entrepreneurs and 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 even some older ones kind of see entrepreneurs on one side of the table yeah. and investors on the other. Right. And these yeah. are two different worlds. Yeah. And you know, you you need each other, and it's like this symbiotic relationship, but they're yeah. they're distinctly different. You know, I always tell the founders that I work with, like. You know, your investor is bringing on another co-founder. It's bringing on another business partner. It's someone you're going to be in bed with for a, right. a long time. Um, from your perspective, having been now on both sides of the table, metaphorically speaking, right. um, do you see that being a, a VC is like being a founder? Do you kind of because it sounds like you're tackling it in a very similar way. Like yeah. we're we're seeing problems, right. we're seeing market yeah. opportunities. Yeah. How do we how do we maximize that? So I think this is this is very much 
this is Rob and me um, as founders who us we are founders and that's never never gonna change so I think that mindset we also we would never want to change um, and and then <clears throat> yeah starting and building a VC is also like starting and building a company you have to find a name which is a, always a nightmare as everyone knows who has started a company before you need that domain that's still available you <clears throat> you need to hire a team you need to set up contracts you need to have, have funding you need to establish your processes etc etc so in that respect it is like starting a company <clears throat> and i think yeah for us having been founders still being founders it's just it's so helpful and 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 helps me every day and knowing what it feels like when you have to fire someone when you're almost running out of cash uh when the initiative that you've been working on for a long time isn't working out so you know been there done that that's the the crazy roller coaster ride that i was referring to earlier so yeah and you have to acquire customers, right? And, and, customers, and yeah. uh, that's why I think this new fund is going to be an interesting oh, entrepreneurial yeah. journey for you yeah. because you're now acquiring a totally different type of customer than true. you have yeah. been so far. Yeah. And yeah. you're going to be turning over new new stones, I yeah. imagine, to find yeah. out. Um, we're a little short on time. I know you've got a, a busy day ahead, but I do like to wrap up episodes with kind of a, a, a bucket full of, of similar questions. So the first sure. one is, um, you know, reflecting back on the past decade and a half yeah. of your entrepreneurial journey. I'm sure you've learned a lot from your successes and your failures. Um, maybe you can share something that you have learned over this time that you wish you could tell your, your younger self? Like, can you impart some wisdom on, <laughs> on, these, on a, a young entrepreneur? And um, as a dad, you will, you will oh, see over yeah. time, like, don't make the same mistake I did. <laughs> <laughs> no one will ever listen to you, but... Yeah, I know, I know. And you always have to, uh, you, you end up, although you, you get advice, uh, you, you still have to, you have to make the, the, yeah, the mistakes yourself. 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 Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, this one thing, I think I've, this is something that's true, that, that, that's very truly there and, 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 and core to me is this notion of, and uh, I, 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 I phrased this when I was heavily uh, drunk um, on my last day at Amorli on Mallorca after all of us were you know, um, boozing the entire day. Um, and then I had this amazing speech, 10-minute speech prepared to say thank you and reflect on the past seven years. And then since all of us you know, had lots of drinks during the day, I had this speech memorized, but suddenly I didn't have it memorized anymore. So the only thing I could remember was ultimately it's all about the people. And um, yeah, it's really, uh, to me, this is so true. And when I look back, it is so true. It is so true when hiring, when picking out your investors, when picking out a co-founder, picking out, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, uh, it's also when it comes to customers, first customers who, who need to trust you and in a B2B setting, for example, a bit harder in B2C. But yeah, ultimately, it's all about the people. I think this is has always been very true in my life. And thinking back to my university days, uh, all the connections I've made, uh, thinking back to those internships, to whatever, it's, I think it's, yeah, ultimately it's all about the, the people. And what I want to say with that is that whoever you meet, you will probably at some point, uh, you'll cross paths again it's, and, and you're, you will be very, very surprised what people do with their lives and uh, how that might suddenly form this amazing symbiosis and um yeah so that's my that's my one thing um yeah that's ultimately it's all, all that, about the people you know i tell a lot of uh veha students when i mentor them is like look at the people that are sitting around you yeah. right now in your classes yeah. you know 15 20 years from now those people are going to be you know yeah. running the world in in yeah. their own ways you yeah. know and those relationships that you carry yeah. go a long yeah. way yeah great advice all right Two more questions, sure. very mundane ones, but always interesting. Um, 
What books on your bedside table? What uh, what could you recommend for a read? Um, I uh, okay, so fiction. I just read uh, A Gentleman in Moscow, um, and this is not it's fiction, and it doesn't have anything to do with the ongoing crisis. It's uh, it does play in. Um, in Russia, but a long time ago, and uh, Amor Tal's, I think, is the name of the author. Wow! I mean, what a book! I really loved it. It's such a such an amazing story. The uh, it plays in kind of like the the Bolshevik uh, days, and it's it's an amazing. It's just a, it's such a feel good story. Um, I'm I'm not going to spoil the story here, but I just I loved reading it because of how it's written. Um, I would recommend to read it in English. I, I don't know what the German translation, how, how, how that came out. Um, but yeah, really loved it. And then obviously, you know, a ton of business books. Uh, uh, but I guess these are all known. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, I appreciate And it that. makes sense to also be able to relax here and there, especially as a founder. I think it's, this is uh, such an underrated skill to be able to shut down and to recharge your battery. So. You know, you don't always have to read those business books, but you can also just open up uh, Gentleman in Moscow and just you know, immerse yourself in this amazing world and just relax a bit. So you don't need a, a week of silent meditation. You can just read some fiction and get lost every day. Yeah. Nice. But you may need 10 days of <laughs> silent meditation. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> All right, last one. You've been in Berlin a long time. Um, I'm sure right. you have some interesting things cycling on your playlist. What what are you jamming out to these days? I mean, besides you know, besides the typical Berlin uh, Paul Kalkbrenner and Fritz Kalkbrenner stuff, uh, you know, lots of lots of kids songs. Uh, I can I think I've become very very fluent in in uh, you know I can I remember all these kids songs <laughs> by heart by now, and they also they do dominate. My Spotify, uh, at least during certain times, when Henry, our little Sophie's, and my one-year-old son, when uh, you know he's in in the mood for it, then it's nonstop, and it's the same song over and over again. So <laughs> obviously, you know there there are some favorites. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like I remember when I first joined Spotify, and you could see what your friends were listening to, oh, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool. There's some interesting stuff." Now it's just like, <laughs> I mean, every like. Everything on that right column is kids' music now. So yeah, but <laughs> but yeah, uh, thanks so much for for coming, Polly. It was a it was a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this. Um, I could have done this for another two hours. I had a million million other questions, but we'll we'll save it to the to the next one exactly. um, when you can share the uh, the incredible journey of this <laughs> this uh, next future fund. Thank you so much. So much. It was a pleasure. Same here. Well, folks. That was Sebastian Pollock of Visionaries Fund. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes coming at you all summer long. And as usual, if you enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a follow and a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.